There we go. How's that? All right. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a privilege to be here. And, and I really want to say thank you to this congregation for the love that you've shown to my parents. So Sam and Louise Larson, it's a real blessing to me being so many miles away to hear the stories of God's faithfulness to them through the body of Christ here. And especially right now is the season of transition in their lives. It's just uh, incredibly meaningful to see the outpouring of love and affection and help and assistance that's coming from so many to surround them. And that's just really, really heartening for me personally. So thank you. Very grateful. And thanks for letting me be here today. It's really good to be with you. I wish my wife and, and children could be here too, but maybe in a future time we'll get a chance to have them down. But please, as you think of our family, um, just pray that they'll recover health-wise. We've got a lot of travel going on right now, and it's hard to be away from them when my wife has to handle all the sickness and the kids, so I would appreciate that. So uh, as Cameron mentioned, I work with an organization called Mission to the World. My wife and I are MTW missionaries, but we're a little different from many because we're actually based here in the U.S. because our ministry group, our people group, are not bound by one particular culture or country or nationality. The people group that we're focused on reaching is the emerging generation, the global youth population, what we call the 1030 window, 10 to 30 year olds, tweens, teens, and 20 somethings, adolescents and emerging adults. It's that young emerging generation that we believe the church has to recognize is a missional calling for us to reach not only the ge geographic missions, but generational missions as well. That missions is about reaching the nations and the next generation. And we've got a short video here just to kind of show you our mission field and what that's all about. So take a look at this. That's our mission field. Simply put, our mission at Global Youth and Family Ministries is to serve the global church in reaching the next generation. And we do that in three primary, three primary ways. The first is through sending. So there are currently eight members on our team. But like I said, our people group is not bound by one particular country or culture. So we're a team that's spread all around the world. And so we've got members of our team who are based in Bogota, Colombia. And they're working to reach young people through outreach and discipleship in the, the, the drug and, 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 and mob-infested sort of culture and streets of Bogota, Colombia. And they're doing amazing work there, reaching street kids, but also now looking at ways to infiltrate university campuses. There's over 20, 23 university campuses in Bogota, Colombia, not a single campus ministry on any of them that's evangelical, let alone reformed. And so we have an opportunity to help establish ministry to these emerging adults in that city that has a population of more than 60% under the age of 30. So we send members of our team to these different strategic locations. We've got members of our team who are based in Nagoya, Japan. Japan, which is an upwardly mobile community society, and yet has one of the smallest percentages of Christians in all the world. And because of the high performance pressure, these young urban professionals in their early 20s, many of them, well, the country as a whole, has, one of the, has number one or number two now, I'm not sure, they're sort of fighting with South Korea in terms of which country has the number one rate of suicide in the world because of performance pressure. You know, Brooks and Reva Kane, members of our team, are doing coffeehouse ministry, spending time with these students, getting to know them and introducing them to Christ. One of the people who's recently come to faith through their ministry working with these young people is, uh, is a guy named Yu, Y-U. And Yu was so overwhelmed by the pressure of his culture and society and the abandonment of his parents 
that he went into his room, locked himself in his room for months on end. It's a phenomenon that's happening around Japan called hikikomori, where people basically go, at an early age, they recognize, I can't keep up, and there's not a place for me in this society. And they lock themselves up. And yet, through redemptive relationship, they're coming to find the answers to their, he's come to find the answer to his heart in a relationship with Christ and his church. We've got members of our team based in, in Europe. We've got partnerships in Mexico and in other places around the world where we're not only sending members of our team across the U.S. into Europe, Asia, Latin America, and other places, but we also are training. We're training national leaders, indigenous churches. Through our Global Youth and Family Institute certificate program, we've got partner sites in different strategic locations around the world where national church planters where missionaries, where local pastors and ministry leaders can come together and be encouraged and equipped from a biblical perspective on how to culturally engage the young people in their own communities. So we're doing sending, we're training, and the third aspect of our ministry, sustaining. Part of our ministry then is to come alongside our own mission families and their kids who are, as they raise their children across cultures on the front lines of God's mission in very, very hard places. It would be a shame, wouldn't it, if we were out there championing a cause for reaching young people around the world, yet failing to come alongside our very missionaries that we prayerfully have sent, that we financially supported, but failed to come alongside them by providing relationship and ministry to them and their kids as they themselves struggle as fallen human beings to live as a family in dark places. Of course, you know my story because you know my parents, Sam and Louise, long-term missionaries, both in Kenya and in Australia. And so I have a big heart for this because I grew up that way. And as great as my parents are, we still struggled as a family and I still struggled as a teen and an early uh, emerging adult. And I needed other people besides my mom and dad to speak into my life and come alongside me in that journey. And I'm very thankful for those who did. And so I'm just here to tell you, this is a vital mission field. And we think that GYFM is incredibly strategic, both for sending people who will reach young people around the world, training leaders in other parts of the world who will reach young people in their own communities, and sustaining missionaries and their kids as they serve cross-culturally. That's what GYFM is all about. We'd love you to prayerfully consider. I'm so thankful for time with Cameron, a chance to share with some other leaders in the church. We look forward to other opportunities to come and share more. And if you have more questions and want to get some more information, maybe sign up for our newsletter, I would love to meet you out in the entryway after the service today. You'll see a little table display and you can grab a brochure or we can chat for a couple minutes. I would love to do that with you. Thanks for an opportunity to take a commercial break with you and share a little bit about the ministry. I do want to turn our attention to God's word this morning, and thanks for the privilege of being able to open the word and share it with you today. In just a minute, we're going to look in Luke, but before we do that, I want to tee this up by showing you a, a video clip. This is from a movie, a personal favorite, Remember the Titans. Some of you guys are nodding and chuckling, you know the film. Great, uh, a great movie. Um, if you don't know the film, let me just set the stage for this uh, little scene you're going to see here. It, it, this movie takes place, it's a, based on a true story takes place around 1971 um, when high schools in Virginia are being integrated, uh, black and white schools coming together, joining together, and this sort of centers around that civil rights um, season there in Virginia around this one particular high school, and really it focuses in on the football team, the high school football team, as two teams 
with their own sort of focus, their own agenda, their own differences, have to come together and become one. And they come together under head coach, Coach Boone. And on, in this scene, it's just at the very beginning when these two teams are merging and they're getting on the buses to go to football camp. And there are two players from the white team who have their own arrogant agenda about how this is going to work out. And they approach Coach Boone to tell him how to run his team. So take a look at this. <laughs> uh, great scene, great scene. I just love it. And I think that's a great way to introduce our message today because in many ways, while we chuckle at that and appreciate that, um, you know, in a lot of ways, that's really how the Lord approaches us. In many ways, that's really the question that he has to ask you and me this morning. Who's your daddy? He comes to us not as an intimidating coach, but as a, a loving and yet strong heavenly father who longs for us to find our identity in him as his adopted sons and daughters. And that we would have a new community, the covenant people of God, the church. And he wants to root us and ground us in that reality, that that would be the core of what defines us and who we are. And yet so often, if you're anything like me, and I know we all share in the human condition, well, our tendency is to put our identity in other things, isn't it? So I don't know what that is for you. Let me ask you to take a moment and reflect as I run an inventory for you. Let me ask you some questions and just have you think for a moment. Maybe you want to even use the, the, the space that's in your bulletin to jot some of these thoughts down to yourself and reflect on them. Where is it that you tend to put your identity? Is it in who you know? Is it in your sphere of relationships? Maybe it's in your spouse and who they are and their position in the community or in the church or how they're looked up to or liked by others and that's where you place your identity is in that relationship. Maybe it's in your kids. For a lot of us, uh, oftentimes our, our children are the very things that we sort of orient our entire lives around. We become so centered around our kids that that becomes the true center and source of our identity and our focus. Maybe it's your friendship circle. And it's just making, maintaining and making sure you have that sphere of friends and are keeping up with them and connected with them. And that is the core of your identity. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's not so much who you know. But maybe for you it's what you do. Your identity really is in your career. Your first answer to the question of kind of who you are, your first question for others is what do you do? Because that's the core of your identity. It's in your, your career. It's, it's in your title it's in the organization that you work for. Maybe it's your accomplishments, your trophies for the things that you've done or your degrees on the wall or maybe it's your high score on some game. I don't know what it might be, but sometimes our identity can be wrapped up, really, if we're honest with ourselves and who we know or what we do. Or maybe it's in the things that you like, those sort of extracurricular hobbies or pursuits, uh, the, the, the sports team that you follow or... Uh, uh, the involvements that you have, your particular sense of taste and fashion, or maybe it's the music that you're into or the band that you uh, really enjoy, whatever it might be. Maybe it's the stuff that you have, and it's just polishing it and keeping it and looking at it, enjoying that technology or those toys, and that's where your identity is. Sometimes it's even in our own culture. Sometimes we so put our identity in our culture your background, where you're from, what particular town, what particular part of the 
United States or what particular country you were raised in or culture? Is that your true allegiance, allegiance and sense of identity? And then there are some here this morning who when they reflect on the question of the core of their identity and they think about their past. And it's past things that you've committed that have now become such a defining thing for you. You think to yourself, that moment when I failed is so bad, I can never come out from under that. The shame and the guilt from my failure or my sin now defines me and I will never escape that. And if the people sitting around me in this congregation just knew, that would be forever the scarlet leather that identifies who I am. Or maybe not just your failure, but the ways you've been sinned against. Some of us have experienced terrible abuse or have been hurt and wounded and injured spiritually, physically, emotionally, in all kinds of different forms. And the shame of that and the ripple effects of that hurt, even some of the resentment and things that have gone unhealed now continue to have a grip on your life and are become the identifying piece at the core of who you really are. And yet Jesus is here this morning speaking to us through his spirit with the word, coming to you and saying, who's your daddy in, a, in order to beckon you back to who you were made to be in the first place, to come home, to find your father to know what it means to be his son or his daughter and to find a new family, the church, his people, and to be healed and set free to know him. So let's pray and then we'll look at Luke 2 together. Father, would you do that? Would you speak to our hearts this morning? Would you use your word to open us up, to crack our hearts open, to soften us, to help us see clearly who we are, to see our brokenness, to see our sin, to see our desperate need for you, to see that our longing for belonging and identity will only ever be met in you, Jesus. Will you do that? Will you lead us in that? Will you change us even in this time together? We ask through Christ, amen. We're gonna look at Luke chapter two at a scene in Jesus' life. One of the only scenes that we have in Scripture of Christ's early childhood and his younger days. And anytime that happens, by the way, you look in the Gospels and you see, you know, there's so much more that could have been captured and written down, but this was one that was preserved. Why? It makes us ask the question, why is this one sort of spotlighted? There's got to be a purpose. There's a reason we're supposed to hear and understand this story. And of course, anytime we read the narratives and the Gospels about Jesus Christ, one of the things that's easy, I know for me to do, and I think for a lot of folks in the church, it's easy to sort of super spiritualize Jesus. And what I mean by that is to sort of look at his life and go, wow, look what he did. There's no way that can actually apply to me because he was the son of God. He was Jesus. I'm just a broken human being. And there's elements of truth to that because the reality is that he was able to perform miracles and do things that maybe you and I are not able to do. However, I think a lot of times we throw the baby out with the bathwater and we forget that Jesus was not only 100% God, but is also 100% man. We get so focused on what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross that we forget what he accomplished for us in his life. That Jesus actually lived the life that you and I were meant to live. 
before the fall and sin entered the world and our hearts and we rebelled against God. This is actually a picture of what recovered humanity would look like for you and for me and for our, our young people. So let's take a look at this and see what's instructive for you and for me as we wrestle with the question, who's your daddy? Where's your identity? Let's look at Luke chapter two, verses 41 and following. Now his parents, Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, just a young guy, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, so now they're headed back from Jerusalem, headed home, they're going back. As the feast was ended, they're returning. The boy Jesus does what? He stays behind. Jesus stays behind in Jerusalem. And here's the kicker. Next uh, line. His parents didn't know it. Okay, now that whole thing I said about like this being something for us to learn from and, you know, sort of put our lives around. I'm not suggesting, by the way, for young people in the audience that you just go off and don't tell your parents where you're going <laughs> and disappear. That's not the point here. But let's see what's happening. Jesus stays behind. His parents don't know it. Again, that's kind of easy to happen. They're traveling in caravan, lots of cousins, aunts, uncles, extended family of God, all moving together. And it's just easy to sort of think Jesus is running around playing with, you know, these other kids or he's, you know, some other family or friend is watching him. Or maybe Mary's over here with the ladies thinking he's, Jesus is with Joseph and the guys or Joseph is thinking Jesus is over with mom, whatever. But they just kind of move on, and sure, but sure enough, Jesus just kind of stays behind in Jerusalem, and the caravan heads off. Well, let's see what happens. Verse 44, supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, whole day, and then all of a sudden it dawns on them, Jesus is not here. Mary, have you seen him? No, but I'm not reading the Bible, right? Mary, have you seen Jesus? No, I thought he was with you. What, I thought he was with you? What's going on? Where's Jesus? They're looking everywhere for their son, frantic. Anybody who's lost a kid in a crowd or a mall or something like that knows what I'm talking about. And they're looking everywhere, searching for him among their relatives and acquaintances, verse 45, and they, when they didn't find him, they had to go back. They returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, okay, kind of put yourself in this passage for a minute. Put yourself in the shoes of Mary or Joseph, whatever, whoever you would identify with. How are you feeling? Three days your kid's been missing from you. How anxious, how angry, how upset. After three days, verse 46, they found him. Where did they find him? In the temple. Sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, you can just imagine a mother's voice on this one, especially a Jewish mom maybe, you know, no offense, but you know, what are you doing, you know? Where are you? What, uh, he's like, son, why have you treated me like this, you know? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Yeah, and you're gonna get it. <laughs> and, and then verse 49, and Jesus responds to them and says, you know what, you're right, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Is that what your translation says? <laughs> no. He said to them, well, why are you looking for me? To you and me, we go, what? Duh, you were supposed to be in the group. We traveled for a day. You weren't anywhere. You didn't tell us where you were. Three days we've been looking for you. Here you are. And you would ask that question? You see, we're supposed to learn something right here. We're supposed to understand something for you and for me and for our kids. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? 
And it says his parents didn't get it. They didn't understand at that moment. You see, what we're seeing taking place right here is that at an early age, at just 12 years old, actually by Jewish reckoning, he would, have, he would actually be 11 years old. We would say that Jesus was 11 years old the way they count the years. At just 11 years old, uh, we see a shift happening in Jesus' life. As a young boy, his shift in identity moving from his earthly father or earthly parents to his father in heaven. From his earthly family to the family of God. And that's supposed to happen for every single one of us. Oh, it doesn't mean we abandon our parents and we walk away from our nuclear families and we cut all ties. And we... But it does mean that fundamentally at the core of who we are, there is not to be any other competing thing that comes close to our ultimate allegiance. No other person, no other thing, no other pursuit, no other human relationship, even your own mom and dad don't come anywhere close to the core of your identity, being in allegiance and relationship with your Father in heaven and to his people. You've got a new family when you come to faith in Christ. Your brothers and sisters. You've got your brothers on the team. I don't know where you are in your walk with Jesus. I don't want to make any assumptions here this morning. You may be coming and just kind of listening in and kind of figuring this thing out, kind of wondering whether or not this thing is real and Jesus Christ is true and the Bible is legit. I don't know where you are, but I will tell you this, that the longing of your heart to find your ultimate identity and a sense of genuine community will never be met in any of the other alternate opportunities, people, things. All of those things are very, very pale substitutes, are artificial, and every single one of them, and if you've lived any number of years, Many of us in this room have already experienced where those things have failed us and do not fulfill. Why? Because you are made for another. Why? Because to be truly human means to come to the place where we recognize that Jesus Christ lived the life you were meant to live, that he died the death that you deserve and your sins deserve, that he conquered death and rose again to give you life in his name so that you might be adopted by our Father in heaven and by the Holy Spirit working in your life to regenerate you and make you new, to recreate you, to restore you, to rehabilitate you, and to bring you back into that relationship you were made for with your Father in heaven as his adopted son or daughter and with a new family, your brothers and sisters, the body of Christ, the church. This was very powerfully represented to me, and I experienced this when I was in India not long ago, and with Global Youth and Family Ministries, they're ministering to some young people who were kids who'd been rescued out of leper colonies. Now, you have to understand, in India, it's quite a stratified society. They have the caste system, and the very lowest caste, the outcast, are those who are lepers and others like them. And so they're actually put into leper colonies where they are left there. And of course, leprosy is one of those diseases that you only con contract after extended exposure to leprosy. So these families who would have children in the leper colony, the only hope their kids have of avoiding contracting leprosy was through this ministry of some of our fellow MTW missionaries where they will reach in at an early age of three years old, four years old, and take the kids and raise them in a group home in Bhopur. And these Hindu parents will actually relinquish their kids to a Christian organization 
because they recognize it's the one shot their kids have of escaping contracting leprosy. So these kids are raised from a very early age all the way through high school in a group home being taught, being discipled, coming to faith in Christ. The great majority, if not all of them, come to a place at an early age of trusting in Jesus. And they find a new community with their brothers and sisters in this home. And I'm sitting there after giving a weekend retreat and spending time with these kids and and investing in these high school seniors and we're sitting around the campfire at the end of the retreat and I'm talking with some of these kids and they say to us, uncle, uncle, that's what they call me, uncle, pray for us. And I said, of course, I want to pray for you. How can I pray for you? We are about to graduate and leave the home. And I said, oh, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? Well, because they're still considered outcasts in Indian society and most of them don't have the ability to go get a job, the majority of them are going back to the leper colony and moving back in under their parents' roof. And they begin to tell me stories of their friends who are upperclassmen that they've heard as they've gone back out across India, back into these leper colonies and moved back home where the Hindu parents, when the Christian student comes back, mean to crush their Christianity. We're glad you got the education, but you must be Hindu now. And they will actually abuse their kids, hurt their kids, torture them, and the rest of the colony will join in until some of these kids renounce their faith. Many of them come back to find out they've had a marriage prearranged for them to a Hindu spouse. And these kids are saying, we don't know what's going to happen to us. And I'm sitting there with my eyes wide, and I take their hands, and we go to pray. And I said, how can I pray for you? They said, we don't know how you can pray for us, but we can tell you this, no matter what happens to us, we will not leave Jesus. The core of their identity had shifted. They had to go back, many of them, but they weren't gonna go back. They weren't gonna go back and put their identity and trust in a false religion or in their parents and family of origin. They knew now that they were bought and belonged and adopted by their Father in heaven. That was the true core of their identity. And they knew that even though they were gonna scatter across India, they were part of a larger extended family. They belonged. They belonged to the church. And it wasn't just represented locally, but they knew that they had aunts and uncles around the world who loved them and know them and stand in solidarity and prayer with them. They had a new identity and a new community. So I ask you, where do you need God to loosen you so that he can move you and transplant you and root you more deeply in your relationship with him. Whether that's for the first time and a moment of coming to terms with the reality that you need a relationship with Jesus Christ, or whether that's for the hundredth or thousandth time of saying, Lord, I keep drifting, I keep tending to go back and wanting to put my identity and my sense of importance and allegiance in these other things. And what are we doing individually and corporately What are we teaching the young people of our church and in our families about what the core of their identity is and where their ultimate community is? Those are good questions to wrestle with and to pray through and to think about. But turn with me to Mark chapter 11 because not only does God give us a new identity and a new trajectory, I mean a new community, but he gives us a new trajectory, a new direction for our lives. And we see that in Mark, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 11, sorry, beginning around verse 12. And here now we're flashing forward in Jesus' life from his childhood now to his adulthood. And we're gonna learn something more about what God does in our lives as he brings us into relationship with him and his people, but then gives us a whole new purpose as well. 
beginning verse 12. On the following day, when they come from Bethany, he was hungry. He being Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Jesus is hungry, he's with his disciples, see a fig tree, it's leafy, it's green, it's alive to itself, goes up to pluck fruit, but no fruit. Alive to itself, but failing to offer life to others. And so what does Jesus do? He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. What's going on here? Did Jesus lose his temper? Did he lose his cool? Did he blunder? We know he never sinned. He lived the life you and I were meant to live, perfect, sinless, as 100% God and 100% man. No, he's not doing something wrong here, but he's trying to teach his disciples something. He's giving them a picture. He's giving them an illustration, an object lesson, if you will, that makes a lot more sense for us as we read what happens next in the narrative. So follow with me in verse 15. And then they carry on and they come to Jerusalem and he enters the temple and begins to drive out those who sold, the, uh, sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you, you've made it a den of robbers. Whoa, Jesus just went incredible hulk on these guys. What is going on here? He's turning over tables. He's, he's, he's doing this incredibly angry and intensive. Well, we know in his anger he never sinned. It's righteous, it's right. What is it? This is one of the only moments where we see and read of Jesus getting so vehemently enraged. What is it that cuts to the core of his heart? The very center of what is his top priority and he is enraged over. What is going on in the temple here that he must cleanse it to restore it to its actual original intent and purpose? Well, a lot of times people think, well, they were buying and selling and Jesus is mad because commerce is going on or, or it's, they're distracted by the money or maybe they were using unfair scales and weights and measures and were cheating people. And some of those things may be true, but I think that misses the true point, the fundamental point of what's going on in this passage. You see, it wasn't what they were doing that was wrong. In fact, this was the temple where people had to come from miles and miles. In fact, we just read about how Jesus had traveled for three days to go and do the family temple service and worship. And of course, when people came, they had to offer sacrifices and so on. And, and, and a lot of times, animals and things couldn't make that kind of journey. So there was actually provision. We read about it in Leviticus and other places in the law where God had made provision and, and rules and regulations to allow people to actually come and purchase those things at the temple and be able to go in and do their, their temple worship. So that's not actually the issue. It's not what they were doing that was wrong. What makes Jesus so angry? It's where they were doing it. You see, they had set up shop in the outer court of the temple, which also has another name, it's called the court of the Gentiles. You see, God's purpose for his people constituted in the, in, 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 in the people of Israel and now in, in the church, God's consistent purpose for his people for all time was that they would be a billboard for him to the nations. That they would be not only his specially prized and blessed people alive unto themselves, but that they would offer life to others. That they would be his conduit, his mechanism, his missional arm 
for reaching the nations and the next generation. And that was even represented in the, the, the makeup of the temple itself, that there was even space provided for outsiders to come in and to know the God of Israel, the true God, the one true God. And yet what had they done? They'd done what the people of God have done throughout time and continue to struggle with today. They've gone inward on themselves, focused on their own needs, focused on taking care of their own. And so much so that they actually filled up the very space that was supposed to be to reach out and bring in in order to meet their own needs. That's what enrages Jesus. When his church fails to take up their, not only their new identity and community, but why? They have a new identity and a new community for a reason, for a purpose. To be his people, to be his arm, to reach the nations and the next generation with a relationship. That's what they were robbing the people of. They've made it a den of robbers because they were robbing people from a relationship with God. In fact, look what happens if you, if you have a moment. It can turn to Matthew 21. Um, I'll read it for you if you can't get there. But Matthew 21, in the parallel passage, we see what happens right after Jesus cleanses the temple and restores it to its ultimate purpose. Listen to this, verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you not hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, I do. Haven't you heard? Don't you get it? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Jesus restores the temple to its ultimate original purpose. And what happens next? In come the weak and the young. In come the alien and the orphan. In come the Gentile and the child. And give him praise and receive healing. That's his call on the church. That's his call on your life and mine. And yet, we have to ask ourselves the question, what's the trajectory of my life, if I'm really honest? What are my goals? What's my ultimate purpose? How does that square up with God's? for me and for his people. Your goals about your career advancement, about your financial security, maybe getting early retirement, accumulating certain things, respect, admiration. Maybe it's a real simple one. It's really a low bar. It's just, I just want to numb myself out. I just want to medicate. I just want to escape. That's my goal today is just to get by. If you were to ask your wife, your husband, if you were to ask your close friend, if you were to ask your kids, what's our family all about? What would they say? If they were really free to be, to be honest with you. What, what's my life all about? What would your friends tell you? What are our goals for the young people in our own families and in, our, in this church? Is it just that people get good grades and, and build their resumes and, and get great scholarships to great schools and that they're popular and stay out of trouble and that they ultimately get married because you've got to do that and that they have great careers? What are our ultimate goals for our kids and the young people in our homes and in our families? When we come to grips with God's trajectory for our lives as individuals and as his people, it's going to radically shift how we do our lives. It's going to rock our worlds. It's going to mess with our agendas. 
it's going to shift our priorities around. I experienced this uh, when I was, um, oh, this is maybe nine years ago when my youngest was just about two years old. We're sitting down, it's Christmas time, we're sitting by the fire, two-year-old's upstairs taking a nap, it's quiet. She's my loudest of all my kids, so when she's quiet, it's like, hallelujah. Ask my parents about my daughter, Emma, they'll tell you, woo, small doses, please, small doses. Emma's upstairs in bed, we're sitting there, we got a fire on, my wife and I getting a chance to relax, put our feet up. We put, it, we put on a TV show we wanted to watch, and it was just like, ah, my comfort, my agenda for a Sunday afternoon. Yes, I have achieved what I've desired. And just a few minutes into it, all of a sudden, beep, 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 beep. What's going on? Beep, beep. It sounds like a truck outside. What's happening? I run to the front door, open it up. There's no truck backing up. Beep, 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 beep. It's louder. It's my smoke alarm. I turn and look up the stairs, and there's billowing black smoke in the upstairs hall. I race to the top of my stairs and I look down the hallway and there's my two-year-old standing there who I didn't know could get out of her crib thing, but she could. And thankfully she did. And she's standing there and she looks at me and she goes, uh-oh. Whoa! And there's billowing smoke and flame behind her. And I race and grab her and get her downstairs to safety, get the family out, run back upstairs and walk into her room and it's full of black soot and smoke flowing. And there is a pillar of fire in the middle of her room where the space, space heater had tipped over on its front and the fail-safe didn't go off. It kept cooking and just burned the carpet and it was this molten sort of like candle in the middle of the thing. So I grab some flannel graph stuff and, you know, pl plastic bin and I grab the thing and I drop it in there and it's like a flambe in a restaurant and I come running downstairs and out the front door and dump into the snow, tss, you know, put it out. Later when the, uh, when the fire, firemen came, they told me how stupid that was, that I should never have done that. But anyway, the point is this. So often we want to live our lives for our own comfort, our own agenda, our own trajectory. But when we come to grips with the reality of the call that God has in our lives, and he ignites our passion for reaching the nations in the next generation, and he helps us to see that there is a much bigger and greater purpose than any of those other things that we want, he will move us into places we would never naturally go on our own. Hey, when I saw the flame, all of a sudden, putting my feet up and enjoying a little downtime, paled in comparison to the urgency and the immediacy of the mission of rescuing my child and getting my family to safety and doing first things first, right? God's gonna do that in your life and mine. If you ask him to, if you open yourself to it, he's gonna change you. Do we tend to make Christianity in the church about our comfort or is it about Christ's kingdom? his passion, his purpose. How are you helping your kids? How are we helping our kids? You know, if you're here and you don't have children because you've raised them already, or you're in your 20s or something, you don't, you're not married, you don't have children of your own, or, you know, for whatever reason, you're here and you're a part of this body, guess what? The kids in this church belong to you too. They're ours. The call is not just on individual parents, it's on all of us. How are we collectively, corporately as a church reaching out to our young people, praying for them, serving with them and serving them, teaching them to give of what they have to God's world mission, being willing to say, you know what? If my child decides that God has called them to not live next door and not do the things that I want them to do, be around me and raise grandkids down the street so I can spend time with them, but God calls them to the other side of the world to serve him, can I get behind that and give up my agenda for their life? Are we willing to send them? Are we willing to be sent? What kind of conversations are we having with the young people in our lives? 
Do they center around God as the author and hero of their story, of your story and mine? Or, or is he just kind of a tack on? Is the only time we ever pray with each other or with our children when we just say thanks for the food or something like that? Or are we actually engaging in God's world mission by praying together for what he's doing in the world and how he wants to use us in that as well? We have a savior who laid aside his rights and his privileges to identify with his people and to do his father's will. He's even gone to the cross that you and I might be made sons and daughters of God, brought into a new community and given a new purpose and trajectory. You know, Coach Boone said it well. When you get on that bus, you ain't got no mama no more. You got your brothers on the team and you got your daddy. We've got our brothers and sisters on the team. We've got a new father as his adopted sons and daughters. He's calling you and me to get on the bus to lead us out in victory as his agents of grace to reach the nations and the next generation with his love. Let's ask him to do that with us. Let's ask him right now. God, would you do that? Would you use us to be your hands and feet? Would you root us more deeply in you? Would you connect us more significantly to our brothers and sisters here and around the world? And would you lead us out willing to lay down our agenda our old allegiances in order to follow you and to be your agents in reaching the nations of the next generation. We ask you to do that through Christ. In his name we pray, amen.